Well, welcome to Guys Night Out. We are so grateful that you're here tonight, so thankful that you made it this evening. Tonight we have an incredible privilege of hearing from Lee Strobel. He's a phenomenal author, one of the leading voices in the whole world on evangelism. I've read his books. I love his book, The Case for Christ. My wife and I have watched his DVDs. He's just phenomenal. He's a friend of our church. He just spoke at our conference here just a couple weeks ago. And so it's a high privilege to be able to have him. And so if you want to go ahead and be seated, and when Lee Strobel comes, would you give him a huge new life welcome? Go ahead and be seated, and then we'll have Lee Strobel. Good to see you, man. What a great night. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I'm excited for the opportunity to be here. I live in Castle Rock up the road. Uh, moved there a few years ago. Uh, so glad to be in Colorado. The main reason I'm glad to be in Colorado is I no longer am in Chicago. And the reason I'm glad I'm not in Chicago is I do not any longer have to be a Chicago Cubs fan. So I'm done. I'm through. I wash my hands. That's it. My grandfather was a Cubs fan. My father was a Cubs fan. I've been a Cubs fan. My son, I mean, we're done. Uh, you know, they're just so frustrating. You know what Jesus said to the Chicago Cubs? Don't do anything till I get back. <laughs> and they, they, they may play a lousy baseball, but they've been very obedient. So you got to give them that. So I, I moved to Colorado. What do I get? The Rockies. Oh, my goodness. It's like. Okay, whatever. It, I guess it builds your faith. Um, I'm, uh, I'm going to do something tonight um, that I, I, it may stretch us a bit. It, we're going we're gonna to really think tonight. Today we're going to talk about some matters of faith and why we believe certain things as followers of Christ and how it is that we can communicate that to other people in a confident way and, and, and explain to them why we believe what we believe. Uh, I was an atheist for much of my life, for the first 30-some-odd years of my life. Um, I was convinced that God did not exist, could not exist. And um, my attitude was, if there is no God, then the most logical way to live my life was as a hedonist. A hedonist is someone who just pursues pleasure in life. And so I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and uh, narcissistic uh, kind of a life. I mean, that was my life. Um, I had success as, as a journalist at the Chicago Tribune. I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. Uh, everybody thought I was doing great, winning awards for investigative reporting. Uh, and yet on Saturday night, I was literally drunk in the snow in an alley. Uh, so that was my life. And then my wife became a Christian, which at the time I thought was the worst possible thing that could happen. Um, but positive things began to happen in her life. I began to watch as her life changed as she followed Christ. And, and the way in which she related to me and the children and so forth was very winsome and it was very attractive. And so one day she said to me, I was sleeping off a hangover, and she said, why don't you go to church with me today? And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go. Get her out of this cult that she's involved in, you know. So I went with her to church. I heard the gospel explained. I didn't believe it. But I decided to investigate it, use my journalism training, my legal training, and investigate, is there any credibility to Christianity or any other world religion? 
And that launched me on what turned out to be a nearly two-year investigation of the evidence for faith. Now, as I began that investigation, one thing became very clear to me quickly, and that's this. If you want to determine if Christianity is true, if you want to determine that not only is Christianity true, but every other faith system in the world is false, if you want to determine that for sure, it all boils down to one question. And here's the question. Did Jesus... Or did he not return from the dead? That's the ball game. That's the why is that the ball game? Because Jesus made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. At one point, he stood before a group and he said, "I and the Father are one." And the word in the Greek there for one means we. I, I, it's it's not masculine. It's neuter, which means that Jesus was not saying I and the Father are the same person. He was saying I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. I am. So how did people respond? Well, they picked up stones to kill him because they said you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. But so what? I could do that. Anybody could claim to be the Son of God. But if Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth, right? That's why the resurrection is the cornerstone, the linchpin of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul recognizes this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. In other words, if the resurrection is false, our faith is is worthless. If it is true, it means that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. It changes everything. So how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? How can you be sure? And how can you, if someone challenges you and says you're a Christian, you believe, what, in the Easter bunny and that Jesus rose from the dead? I believe he rose from the dead, but I've got good reasons for doing that. And I want to talk to you tonight about those reasons. I want to give you four words that begin with the letter E, so it'll be easy to remember, that will give you a framework so that you can personally have confidence in your own life, that Jesus did rise from the dead. He is the Son of God, but also so that as you encounter people, you might have an opportunity to talk about why you believe Jesus did rise from the dead and thus prove that he's the Son of God. Now, as I did this investigation, I want to make one thing clear. I did not give the Bible any credibility that was special. I didn't believe it was the Word of God. I didn't believe it was inerrant. I didn't believe it was inspired. I do now, but I was a skeptic then. So I didn't give the Bible any special credibility, but I had to accept the New Testament for what it undeniably is. It is a set of ancient historical documents. And I knew, just as you can test other historical writings, you can put those same tests to the Bible to try to determine, is it telling me the truth? So in other words, I didn't just open the Bible and say, oh, Jesus rose from the dead, end of case. I wanted to dig beneath that. How do I know the Bible is accurate historically when it says that Jesus rose from the dead? So how would you explain the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. What would you say if someone challenged you and said, why would you believe Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead? 
Well, I'm going to give you four words, begin with the letter E, so you'll always remember what is the evidence for why I'm a Christian, why I follow Jesus Christ. Here's the first E. stands for the word execution. You've got to have a death, right, before you can have a resurrection. How do we know Jesus really was executed under Pontius Pilate? How do we know that that's historically true? Well, as I investigated this, what I learned very quickly is that there is no dispute about this among scholars in the field. You go to ancient historians, virtually all of them, whether they're a Christian or an atheist, will tell you that, yes, Jesus was executed on a Roman cross under the reign of Pontius Pilate. Why is everybody so sure of this, even non-believers? Because when you study ancient history, one thing you learn is that we're lucky if we have one source to confirm a fact from ancient history, maybe two sources to tell us something from ancient history. But in the case of the execution of Jesus Christ, we not only have multiple early independent reports that he was executed uh, in the writings of the New Testament, but we also have five ancient sources outside the Bible that confirm and corroborate Jesus being executed. Uh, We have Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans. Uh, Tacitus, another early historian. Even the, the, the Jewish Talmud admits that Jesus was executed. There is no dispute about this among scholars because we have so many sources confirming it. In fact, you would get laughed out of a major academic institution if you claim that, no, 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 Jesus wasn't executed. In fact, you could go to an atheist New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludeman of Vanderbilt University, and this is what he'll tell you, quote, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion, is indisputable. Now, there's not a lot about ancient history that a skeptical, atheist scholar like Gerd Ludeman will say is indisputable. One of those things is the execution of Jesus. The first E is for execution. Jesus was dead. The second E, this is my favorite one, starts, uh, is from the word early. We have early accounts or early reports that Jesus was not only executed, but he rose from the dead. In other words, reports that come immediately after the execution of Jesus. Here's the point. When I was a skeptic, like a lot of skeptics you'll talk to, they'll say, oh, the resurrection of Jesus, that's a legend. That's mythology. And we know that after a long period of time, legends can develop. And we know that in the ancient world, it took at least two generations of time for legend to develop and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. So legends did develop, but it took 100, 150 years or 200 years for legends to develop. But in the case of the resurrection of Jesus, this was not a legend that developed 200 years later. We have a report about the resurrection of Jesus that is so early that it rules out the possibility that this would merely be a legend. Follow me on this. I think this is fascinating. We have preserved for us a creed of the earliest church. A creed is a statement of conviction that they would gather around in the first century based on facts that they knew to be true. Now, this creed contains the essence of Christianity. It says Jesus died. Why? For our sins. He was buried. 
On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And then it mentions the specific names of eyewitnesses, including opponents and skeptics, whose lives were changed 180 degrees because they encountered the resurrected Jesus. Now, here's what's important about this creed. This is not some legend that developed 200 years later. This creed dates so quickly after the resurrection of Jesus, it comes too fast to be merely a legend. Here's how we know. The Apostle Paul preserves this creed for us. He writes it down. And if you want to look it up for yourself later, he put it in, in 1 Corinthians um, um, uh, chapter 15, starting at verse 3. So he preserves that for us. Um, now, we know that 1 Corinthians was a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church 25 years after the death of Jesus. And so here we have this creed, this report that Jesus rose from the dead, dated within 25 years of the death of Jesus. Now, historically, that's amazing. When you consider the first two biographies of Alexander the Great by Arian and Plutarch were written 400 years after the fact, and they're generally considered reliable. And yet here we have a creed preserved within 25 years. But we can go back earlier because Paul had been Saul of Tarsus, a hater and persecutor and killer of Christians. After the death of Jesus, about one to three years later, Saul of Tarsus is riding on the road to Damascus. He has this incredible encounter with, with Jesus that knocks him off his horse and transforms him into the Apostle Paul. Now, immediately he goes into Damascus. Some scholars believe this is the point at which he was given this creed. But most scholars say, no, it was probably three years later. Three years later, Paul went to Jerusalem, and he met with Peter and James. Now, interestingly, Peter and James are the only two individuals specifically named in the creed. So Paul meets with Peter and James for 15 days. And in describing this meeting, which he describes in Galatians chapter 1, Paul uses the Greek word hysterese. And what that means is Paul's saying, I wasn't just shooting the breeze with Peter uh, and James. I was talking, this was an investigative inquiry. We were checking our facts. We were considering really important and weighty things in our meeting over 15 days. And most scholars will say this was the point at which Peter and James, who were mentioned in the creed, gave him this creed about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, either way, it means within one to six years after the death of Jesus, we now have a creed that reports his resurrection from the dead. But we can go back even earlier, because if that creed can be dated back to one to six years after the life of Jesus, we know that the facts that make up that creed go back even earlier, virtually to the cross itself. So the point is this, friends. We don't have a huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the development of a belief that he rose from the dead. There are reports that go right back to the cross itself. In fact, one of the greatest historians in this area is James D.G. Dunn, and this is what he wrote. He said, this tradition, this creed, we can be entirely confident was formulated as a creed, as tradition, within months of Jesus' life. 
or his death. I mean, think of it. Within months, friends, it would be unprecedented in the history of the world for a legend to develop that fast and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. The resurrection of Jesus is not a legend. We have the report that goes right back. To, and that's not the early, early report we've got. We've got others in the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, and, and, and elsewhere in the New Testament. These other writings are circulating so early that they were circulating during the lifetimes of Jesus' contemporaries who would have been all too happy to point out the errors if they were making this stuff up. Friends, we got an execution. Jesus was dead. We have reports of his, him rising from the dead that come so immediately after the event they cannot be merely a legend. And in fact, if you read that creed for yourself, one of the things it says is, Jesus at one point appeared to 500 people at once, and if you don't believe us, go talk to those guys. They're still around. You don't say that unless you're pretty darn confident that they're going to back you up. So Jesus is executed. He's dead. The reports that he rose from the dead come too quickly to merely be a legend. Those are two E's. Third E, though, stands for the word empty. We've got an empty tomb. Now, we could talk the rest of the evening about all the evidence that supports the fact that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Uh, I'm going to mention just um, a couple of things really quickly. First of all is what's called the Jerusalem factor. The Jerusalem factor. And what this means is this. The site of Jesus' tomb was known to Christians and non-Christians alike. If it were not empty, it would have been impossible for a movement founded on the resurrection to explode into existence in the very same city where Jesus had been publicly executed just a few weeks before. That's the Jerusalem factor. Second reason we know the tomb was empty is called the criterion of embarrassment. And this is very interesting. If you're an historian and you're trying to determine, is this ancient document telling me the truth? Is the New Testament telling me the truth about the tomb of Jesus being empty? One of the tests you do is called the criterion of embarrassment. And what it means is this. If the text is telling you something that the writer is writing that's embarrassing to themselves and hurts their own cause, then they're probably telling the truth. Because if they're going to make stuff up, they're not going to make stuff up that's going to hurt their own case, right? So think about this. Who was it who discovered the tomb of Jesus empty? Women. Women discovered the tomb empty. Now, here's the deal. In the first century culture, Jewish culture and Roman culture, that is embarrassing. That hurts your case. Why? Because... In Jewish and uh, Roman culture in the first century, the testimony of women was not considered generally to be valid. They weren't trusted as witnesses. They generally were not allowed to testify in a court of law. They were not considered credible and trustworthy. That's just the way the first century was. Um, we see that in the writings of the Jewish Talmud that says that any evidence which a woman, a woman gives is not valid to offer. Josephus, writing in the first century of Jewish and Roman culture, said, but let, us, let not the testimony of women be admitted. So women were not considered credible. And yet, if you go to the documents in the New Testament, who do they tell you discovered the tomb empty? Women. 
Friends, if they were going to make up the story about the empty tomb and invent the story, they never would have said women discover the tomb empty. That hurts their case. In fact, they were attacked. Christians were attacked in the second century by people who would say, well, you can't trust the resurrection. It was women that discovered the tomb empty. So why do the Gospels tell us women discovered the tomb empty? Because that's apparently what happened. And they decided, hey, that's what happened. We're going to report it. Is it going to hurt our case? Yes. Is it going to embarrass us in our culture? Yes. But what are we going to do? It's what happened. So historians will tell you, they're probably telling the truth. But third reason we know the tomb is empty, and this is my favorite one, is that even the opponents of Jesus admitted that the tomb of Jesus was empty. There was no dispute about this in the first century. How do we know? Because when the disciples began to proclaim that the tomb of Jesus was empty, what the opponents of Jesus did not say was baloney. We know where the tomb, go look in the tomb yourself, you're going to find the body. They didn't say that. What they said, and we know this from documents inside the New Testament and outside the New Testament, what they said was this. Oh, well, the disciples stole the body. Now think about this. What is that? That's a cover story. They're implicitly admitting, yes, 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 the tomb is empty, but we can explain it away. The disciples stole the body. See what I'm saying? They're admitting it's empty. It's like if you're a student and you go to your teacher and you say to your teacher, the dog ate my homework. You're implicitly admitting, I don't have my homework, but I've got an explanation. The dog ate it. Same thing. They're saying, yeah, 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 we admit the tomb is empty, but, yeah, but we can explain it. The disciples stole the body. So everybody's admitting the tomb is empty. The question is, how did it get empty? And by the way, the idea the disciples stole the body, nobody believed it then, nobody believes it now. Disciples didn't have the motive, they didn't have the means, and they didn't have the opportunity. So that, it was a stupid cover story. But the point is, they're admitting the tomb is empty. So, friends, the question of history has never been, was the tomb of Jesus empty? The question of history has always been, how did the tomb get empty? That's the question. So you go down the list of suspects. The Romans weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. The Jewish leaders weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus to stay dead. Disciples weren't about to steal the body. Why? So they could live lives of deprivation and torture and be willing to, to die for what they knew was a lie? I don't think so. I think the best explanation for the tomb being empty is that Jesus rose from the dead, especially when we combine it with the fourth word that begins with the letter E, which is the word eyewitnesses. Not only was Jesus' tomb discovered empty, but over a period of time, Jesus is seen alive by more than 515 eyewitnesses, by skeptics and opponents and enemies as well as believers, indoors and outdoors, to men and to women, to groups and to individuals. I mean, the 515 eyewitnesses, are you kidding me? I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. One of my jobs was to, to travel the country and cover major trials that were going on. I never saw a case with 515 eyewitnesses. I mean, if we took a chair and put it on this platform and says, okay, this is going to be our, our um, uh, uh, witness stand. 
And we call to the witness stand every individual who encountered the resurrected Jesus. And we allow them to testify and be cross-examined for just 15 minutes each. And we sat here around the clock. Do you realize we've been sitting here for five straight days? How many of us, after hearing 128 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, would walk away saying, nah, I don't believe it? <laughs> I mean, this is phenomenal. Now, think about this. Remember we said we're lucky in ancient history if we have one source to confirm a fact or maybe two sources to confirm a fact. Get this. For the conviction of the apostles, the disciples, that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament that confirm their conviction that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. This is an avalanche of historical data. And I'll just click through, if anybody challenges you on this, I'll just click through these nine sources for the conviction of the apostles that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. I think we're going to put them up on the screen. So there's nine sources. I'll, I'll go through these quickly. Um, what are they? First one is the creed that I mentioned. The creed. Um, even the greatest Jewish New Testament scholar, Pinchas Lapid, said that this creed is so historically credible, it may be taken as the statement of eyewitnesses. So we have the creed. Secondly, we have the testimony of Paul. Paul personally encountered the resurrected Jesus. He has a vision of Jesus that, that, that knocked him off his horse, that, that, that turned him into the Apostle Paul. He met and got to know the disciples. Um, he personally knew James and he personally knew John. And he confirms in 1 Corinthians that we're preaching the same thing. So in other words, I was an eyewitness. I encountered the resurrected Jesus. By the way, they're preaching the same thing. So he confirms that the apostles are preaching the same thing. Third fact we have is the book of Acts. The book of Acts in the New Testament records the activities of the early church. And most scholars, even not Christian scholars, will admit that the book of Acts contains summaries of the early preaching of the church right there in the first century. And what was the central message of the early church? Jesus rose from the dead and proved he's the Son of God. Next, we have the Gospels, the four Gospels. And there are nine appearances of Jesus in these four Gospels. Now, in recent years especially, we've seen how historians testing the Gospels are reaching more and more the conclusion that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are essentially trustworthy in those historic facts that they report. And in my books, I interview scholars on that question. So we have the four Gospels. And then finally... We have the testimony of people who personally knew the apostles. They were students of the apostles, like, for instance, Polycarp or Clement. We'll start with Clement. Clement was uh, personally ordained by Peter. He sat under the teachings of Peter. He knew Peter personally. He knew what Peter believed. And what, is, what does Clement tell us? In the first century, Clement writes a letter to the church in Corinth, and he says, I'll quote his letter, he says, the apostles had complete certainty caused by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he confirms the conviction of the apostles that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. And finally, Polycarp. Polycarp uh, was appointed by John himself as Bishop of Smyrna. And he also writes a letter 
Five times he mentions the resurrection. And this is what he said, referring to Paul and the other apostles. He said, For they did not love the present age, but him who died for our benefit and for our sake was raised by God. So we have nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming the conviction of the apostles that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. This is historical gold. So there's a lot of historical data. The execution, nobody disputes that of any credibility. The early accounts, they come so quickly they cannot be a legend. The empty tomb, even the opponents of Jesus admitted implicitly that the tomb is empty. No dispute about that. And the eyewitness accounts, nine ancient sources confirming the conviction of the apostles that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. He appeared to at least 515 people. Friends, I spent two years of my life investigating this kind of evidence and more. And I've written hundreds and hundreds of pages in my books about the historical data, interviewing scholars with PhDs from Brandeis and Cambridge and Yale and major academic institutions. So at the end of this two years, after having gathered all this data, I, I went alone in my bedroom. And I thought, yeah, I got to analyze this stuff. I got to reach a verdict. I got to reach a conclusion. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? And so I thought, I'm just going to summarize the evidence. So I took a pen and a pad of paper. I started writing down summary of the evidence I'd encountered during this two years. Just page after page after page after page after page. And then finally I put down my pen and I said, wait a minute. In light of this avalanche of historical data that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. <laughs> Seriously, I, that was my conclusion. I just, and so I thought, I believe this based on the historical data that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, but he backed that up by returning from the dead. And then I didn't know what to do. It was like, it was a little anticlimactic. It was like two years of this and I'm done and this is it. And then I remembered a Christian friend had pointed out a verse to me earlier. John 1, 12. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And I looked at that and I thought, oh, wait a minute, I get it now. That verse, if you take the key words out of that verse, they form an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So I said, okay, I got the believe part down. Based on the data, I'm convinced. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, backed it up by returning from the dead. I got that. I believe that based on the evidence. But that isn't enough. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive a free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all of my sins. And when I would receive this free gift, of forgiveness and eternal life, then I would become, according to John 1.12, a child of God. So I got on my knees next to my bed, and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And at that moment, 
I received complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and I became a child of God. And that, friends, is the day my life began to change. Because then, you know, starting at that moment, now as a child of God, now then as I was baptized, as I, as I learned to read the Bible now with fresh eyes as a believer, now that I learned to pray, now that I learned to worship, now that I learned to be part of a church, God began to change my values and my character and my morality and my worldview and my attitudes and my philosophy and my parenting and my relationship. I mean, my life over time, began to change for the good. So much so that my little daughter, Allison, I had a little daughter. She was five years old. You think about this. All she knew for the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent, angry, drunken, profane. That's all she knew. But starting on that day that I received Jesus Christ and God began to change my life, my little five-year-old girl began to watch and listen. Something's going on with Dad. And she watched and listened for about five or six months. And then finally, one Sunday morning, she came up first to her Sunday school teacher at church and then to my wife. And you know what she said? I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. And at age five, my little girl gave her life to Jesus Christ. And today, today she's married to a seminary graduate. Together they write children's books about God. She's a mother of two of my four precious grandchildren. And we're the best of friends. And my son, too, saw something was going on in his family. God was doing something. And he came to faith at a young age. And he ended up taking an academic route. And he got an undergraduate degree in biblical studies. And he got a master's degree in New Testament. Then he got a master's degree in philosophy of religion. Then after many years of research and study, he got his Ph.D. in theology from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And now you know what he does? He's a professor at a major university teaching young people about the truth of Jesus Christ. And he said to me, he said, Dad, you know, my generation, young people today, they don't get it. They don't understand it yet. They don't understand this isn't based on mythology and legend and wishful thinking and make-believe. This is based on a solid foundation of historical truth. And I said, son, you've got your Ph.D. now. You go tell your generation. Friends, God changed my life. He changed my wife. He changed my son. And he changed my daughter. So that's my story. And that's, you know, a framework. The four E's for looking at how do we know the resurrection is true and how can we begin to talk about it with others? Again, you know, you don't have to buy my books. Go to the library. They're free. Just check them out of the library. And all the data is there that you can see and study and, and be prepared. The First Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have and do it gently and respectfully. So I hope you'll do that. But I want to end with this. I'm going to go back to that equation, believe plus receive equals become. And I just want to say, most of us here have become. We're children of God. That's why we worship him. That's why we love him. We're his children. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you 
Do what 1 Peter 3.15 tells all of us as followers to do. Be prepared to give an answer, to explain to others why we believe what we believe. Um, it takes some study. It takes some work. But you know what? We live in an increasingly skeptical world. 34% of young people who leave the church say they do it because they've got intellectual questions. Well, guess what? Christianity has good answers. Let's be prepared to help them. I'm going to end with this. You may have come here tonight, and you may realize, you know what? I kind of I believe this stuff. I mean, what he said confirms what I believe. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He proved what I raised the dead. I get that. I believe that. But my life hasn't changed. My kids have not seen a difference in me. Could it be you come to a church like this and, and, and you want to be part of it and you talk to people and they talk about how they have a close and an intimate and a real relationship with Christ and in the back of your mind you're saying, yeah, but it's not like that with me. Why does God seem so distant from me? Could it be because you believe the right stuff and that's great? But there's never really been a time when you have received the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for you on the cross. I'm just asking the question, friends. Friends, if you're not sure, if you, as best you can, believe, but you're not sure if you've ever received, let's do it. Let's do it right now. Let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you want to take that step, then just God will hear you just in your heart. In your heart, just say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you are the one and only Son of God. And I confess to you that I am a sinner. I've done things I knew they were wrong before I did them, and I did them anyway. And I confess that to you, and I want to turn from my sin. And right now, in an attitude of repentance and faith, I want to receive this free gift, Lord Jesus, that you purchased on the cross for me when you died for my sins to pay for them all. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving me so much that you died so that we could be united in this world and in a perfect way in the world to come. Lord Jesus, help me to live the kind of life that you want me to live. Because from this moment on, I am yours. Now, Father, we celebrate anyone here tonight that, that took that step, that has received this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that your son purchased on the cross. Father, we thank you for that. We know that Luke 15 tells us a party breaks out in heaven anytime any sinner repents and receives forgiveness through your son. So we celebrate that. We pray for each person here. We pray for those that maybe are on a journey. They're not quite sure yet. We pray the day will come when we can celebrate their rebirth as well. And we pray for this church, we pray for the men of this place, that you would help us to be salt and light, to shine your light of love and grace and truth into this community and into this world. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Thanks, everyone. God bless you all. Thanks for your attention. We just want to close tonight with just a, an atmosphere of worship. And uh, let's take just a minute and let's just pray together. Um, we want to, we want to, I want to go ahead and invite some of you small group leaders and some of you guys that are uh, leading here in the church in that way. If you, if you want to in a moment, we want to invite you to come up and, and be available to pray for people. Uh, and if you tonight, if you said yes to Jesus and received this free gift, we just want to invite you to come up here and pray with someone. All right, so staff and small group leaders, if you'd come on up, let me pray, and uh, we'll conclude, all right? Father, in Jesus' name, we just thank you for what you've done tonight. God, we thank you, Lord, for this, this case for Christ, this reality of what Jesus did for each one of us. We thank you, Lord God, for the evidence. God, we thank you for, Lord, the way that Lee just brought it so clearly, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to walk in clarity and truth. God, we ask that we would not only receive this, but God, would you help us be clear in articulating the gospel to others? We ask that you would help us to, to even lead our families in this truth and our friends in Jesus' name. God, we love you so much. And we thank you, Lord, for the good work that you're doing tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It, again, if you, were, if you said yes to Jesus tonight and you'd like someone to pray for you, just come on up here. I'd like to invite small group leaders and staff, come on up. God bless you guys. Thank you for being here tonight. All right, have a great night.